Thank you, Mr. Chair and Judge Barrett. Thank you so much um, for being here today with your beautiful family. Yet once again, we appreciate the support that you are showing to Judge Barrett by being here today. And Judge, I just want to offer you the opportunity at this point. Is there anything from earlier today that you feel you need more time to respond to? Um, thank you, Senator Ernst. I, I would like to just make a quick follow on to some of Senator Hirono's comments. Um, one, you know, I've said a number of times during the hearing that I can't comment or grade existing precedent, and I want to be clear that the point of doing that is not to say whether I agree or disagree with it. It's not to implicitly signal that I do disagree with it. It's designed to be neutral. So in saying that I couldn't opine on whether Obergefell was rightly decided or not, I was certainly not indicating disagreement with it. The point of not answering was to simply say it's inappropriate for me to say a response. And the second point was to say that I certainly didn't mean and, you know, would never mean to use a term that would cause any offense in the LGBTQ community. So if I did, I greatly apologize for that. I simply meant to be referring to Obergefell's holding with respect to same-sex marriage. Thank you for that. I appreciate the clarification. And it goes back to the discussion that you had with Senator Sass on the black robes. Um, when you put that robe on, you are neutral, correct? Yes. Yes, thank you. So I did want to go back because um, the issue of coronavirus has come up yet once again in the committee room. And I just wanted to, to make a point and clarify that uh, the Senate GOP did bring up a relief bill a number of weeks ago. And in that bill, there was a, a $300 boost in weekly unemployment insurance benefits. There was a, a second pass at Paycheck Protection Program for our small businesses. Um, there was additional $105 billion for K-12 schools and colleges um, with new scholarship programs and uh, $15 billion to help working parents find accessible childcare options. There were supports for farmers and ranchers impacted by the pandemic. Uh, there was $31 billion for development and distribution of vaccines, drugs, and other medical supplies, uh, $16 billion for testing and contract contact tracing. There was loan forgiveness for the Postal Service, liability protections for our schools and health care providers, and an expanded charitable deduction for contributions um, made during this pandemic, and many, many other things. It, it was a very, very good bill. It was what we could agree upon, but um, I would note that Senate Democrats did block those provisions that would have gone to help families like Veronica and others in Iowa that are suffering from the pandemic and our, of course, our greatest sympathies to those that have been impacted all across the United States. Um, so, Mr. Chairman, I would like to enter into the record. There's three letters here uh, for the committee, committee and an op-ed, a letter of support from uh, 48 Christian Women Scholars, uh, the second is a letter from a group of governors all across the country, including our own Iowa's Governor Kim Reynolds, um, strongly supporting the nomination of Judge Barrett. The third is a record um, 
letter for from Tracy Lovett, uh, who was with Judge Barrett while they both served on the SCOTUS clerk class of 1998. And then there's also an editorial by Derek Moeller, a professor of law at the University of Iowa College of Law that appeared in the Gazette of Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And uh, this professor had Judge Barrett as his evidence professor at Notre Dame Law School. And he does say she treated all law students from all backgrounds with dignity and respect. If I could have those entered into the record. Without objection. Thank you. And Judge Barrett, I am pro-life. I am pro-life. And I see that judged by your faith and as has been aptly pointed out many times over um, by our colleagues across the aisle that, that you are pro-life. But once again, can we reiterate um, your stance as a judge? Um, so as a judge, my personal moral beliefs which I have not, that I can think of, I, I'm not expressing them publicly right now because now that I am a judge, I can't sign statements like that one that I did 15 years ago. Um, but my policy views, my moral convictions, my religious beliefs do not bear on how I decide cases, nor should they, it would be, you know, an, it would be in conflict with my judicial oath. And I, I know that you consider yourself to be an originalist, as you discussed earlier uh, with Senator Sass. And it seems that adhering to the originals, originalist view would naturally lead a judge to carry out her constitutional duty of impartiality when applying the law. And adhering to this philosophy as a judge takes real courage. And the courage you have displayed thus far as a federal judge prompted a coalition of groups to send me a letter supporting your nomination. Susan B. Anthony List led this coalition letter that I would like to submit to the committee for the record. And I know this is going to make a number of uh, members on the committee just very squeamish uh, because they are a pro-life organization. Uh, but with this in mind, I want to take a moment to read part of this letter. Quote, Judge Barrett has proven herself to handle disputes impartially, approaching cases as a textualist and originalist who loves the Constitution. She is a jurist who rightly leaves politics to politicians and legislating to legislators. And I'll quote further. Quite apart from whatever policy views she may have on the matter, Judge Barrett reasons to a proper result in each case before her. As a federal appellate judge appropriately following controlling precedent, in February 2019, she joined a panel decision upholding a law creating a buffer zone around abortion facilities. This buffer or bubble zone case being referred to is Price versus City of Chicago. Judge Barrett, could you please give us an overview of the city ordinance that was challenged here and explain how precedent established by the Supreme Court's Hill decision influenced your reasoning of the case? Yes, I was on a panel. There was a challenge to a bubble zone ordinance, which essentially means um, it, it was, how to describe it, 
It limited where abortion protesters could go to do sidewalk counseling or leafleting were the things that they identified as um, the, the activities they desired to undertake in the expression of speech outside of the abortion clinic. Mm -hmm. um, the Supreme Court has a case called Hill versus Colorado, and that case said that such bubble zones, especially because this one in Chicago was nearly identical, as I recall, with the one that was at stake in Hill, um, said that they did not violate the First Amendment. And so our panel, you know, at, we're bound by that precedent. Our panel applied that precedent. And so as you say, that was a case involving abortion, but my duty as a judge was to follow the governing law, and that governing law in that case was Hill. Absolutely, and thank you for that clarification. And I think it was important to point that out because in that case, using precedent, it did favor um, that abortion clinic. Is that correct? That is correct. Thank you very much. Um, so I would like to uh, submit this for the record. Thank you. Um, now turning to a topic of agency rulemaking, really sexy topic, not something that we have, not something that we have talked about um, as of yet. But as I mentioned yesterday, when Congress makes laws that overstep the Constitution, it can be felt all across the state of Iowa, whether it's in the streets of Council Bluffs, Iowa, or in the farm fields over in Clinton County. But Congress isn't the only body capable of overstep. Executive agencies can be just as guilty as the, of this as we've seen in Iowa. In 2018, as a judge on the Seventh Circuit, you helped decide a Clean Water Act case specifically Orchard Hill Building Company versus Army Corps of Engineers. The decision found that the federal government did not provide enough evidence to justify its decision to deem 13 acres of Illinois wetlands as a water of the U.S. I'm very supportive of a less expansive definition of WOTUS and am encouraged by how you approach this decision. Farmers in Iowa are also encouraged by this development I believe then, as I do now, that the Obama administration's clean water rule or the WOTUS rule was unconstitutional. But I also want to talk to you about agency rulemaking that I believe was constitutional, which is illustrated in a, a case that uh, the 10th Circuit Court has recently ruled on, specifically Renewable Fuels Association versus EPA. At issue in this case were three exemptions the EPA granted to oil companies, allowing them to avoid their obligations to blend renewable fuel under the Clean Air Act's renewable fuel standard. These oil refinery exemptions, which were not disclosed to the public, were challenged by renewable fuel producers who said that they only found out about the waivers because of investigative news reports. The Tenth Circuit concluded in this case that the renewable fuels producers were injured by the EPA's exemptions and thus had standing to sue. The court also found that the EPA exceeded its statutory authority in granting those petitions because the agency may only extend previously existing waivers. In the case of these three refiners, there was nothing to extend because they had let their exemptions lapse. In other words, the three refineries had not received continuously extended 
extended exemptions in the years preceding their petitions as required by the statute. However, in the wake of this Tenth Circuit decision, small refineries flooded the EPA with 67 petitions for retroactive waivers, some dating back as far as 2011, in an attempt to go back in time and establish a chain of continuously extended exemptions. These oil companies have also appealed to the Tenth Circuit decision to, or the Tenth Circuit decision to the Supreme Court. So while I'm not going to ask you to speak on all of this <laughs> and what is going on, um, the, the problem here, bottom line, is that the EPA wasn't following the law. They took the law that Congress passed, they twisted it and interpreted it for the benefit of oil producers, and that harmed our Iowa farmers. Um, I know, again, you can't speak on how you would rule, rule on these cases, especially those that could be pending before the Supreme Court. But tell me, how do agencies, how should they interpret the laws that are passed by Congress? Well, I think that the court's role in reviewing the lawfulness of agency action, it's largely governed by the Administrative Procedure Act, mm -hmm. um, which governs the way that agencies can do their business and, and outlines what their authority can be. There's also a doctrine called Chevron, which is named after mm -hmm. a case. Right. And many times, if we're talking about a Chevron issue, we're talking about an issue of statutory interpretation. It sounds like that's mostly mm -hmm. what you're thinking of. Mm -hmm. And an agency, you know, when, when a court reviews whether an agency has exceeded its lawful authority, it goes to the statute that you and Congress enact and interprets that statute, looks at the text, and tries to tell whether you've given, given the agency, given the EPA in your example, um, leeway to adopt policies. And that leeway would be present if you had ambiguity in the statute that left the decision to the agency. But if the agency goes farther than the text of the statute permits, then it is the role of a court to say that that action you know, was in conflict with the statute and therefore illegal. And what happens then if there is an actual question on the intent of the law? Um, well, a statute in this context, in a context of a Chevron-type challenge to agencies and agencies' interpretation of it, you would interpret the statute in the same way that you would interpret any other statute. So as I was talking with Senator Sass about earlier, um, my own approach to it would be textualism. And so in my approach to language, the intent of the statute is best expressed through the words. So looking at what the words would communicate to a skilled user of the language. Very good. Well, I appreciate it. We do have a little bit of time remaining. So again, I just want to thank you. I want to thank your family very much for lending their support to you through this process. It can be a bit grueling. Um, but I do have to say, though, your uh, temperament throughout the entire hearing has been truly commendable. So thank you so much. Um, I look forward to working with you further. And uh, with that, uh, Mr. Chair, I will uh, reserve my time.